1: Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Hannah McGregor. And I'm Marcel Cosman. And
0: according to this script, it's my turn to come up with something fun for the sorting chat.
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's right, Marcel. Very shortly, we're going to be talking about class in the wizarding world. But first, we have the segment called the sorting chat. And because I write the scripts today, I've decided you're taking the lead. Go.
0: It's been a hard summer. Fall is not looking to be much easier. So, how about we take this opportunity to talk about the things that are bringing us joy in this otherwise overwhelming and exhausting time? Uh, I'll go first. Love
1: it. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. let's each
0: name two things that bring us joy. I'll start. Okay. Thing number one, I really like Taylor Swift's uh-huh. new album, Folklore, which was produced by Bon Iver. I would never have considered myself a Taylor Swift fan before, but the filthy hipster in me is really into this new album. And I also take a lot of pleasure, item number two, in uh, patterned button-down shirts.
1: Your turn, Hannah. Uh, it's incredible to me that you're wearing shirts with buttons in a pandemic shirts with buttons when you don't have to incredible so i also chose an album as one of my favorite Mm -hmm. things i don't know if you've heard Mm. of it it's pretty obscure Mm. it's taylor swift's new album folk um and fun fact it was produced by bonnie incredible (laughs) i had the closest to a moment of like genuine like brain chemistry, serotonin producing happiness that I can recall in months, mm. which is itself fairly alarming. Yeah. But I realized <laughs> I had this day i I'd bike to Jericho Beach, which is a further away beach for me. It's about an hour-long bike ride for me to get there. And I spent the day on the beach. And then I was biking home in the evening. And I was biking through my neighborhood. And I was all, like, pleasantly tired and, like, saltwater encrusted. And there was one of those just beautiful late August sunsets that produced that really particular, like, deep orange light. Mm -hmm. And I was biking through my neighborhood and everything was glowing with the sunset and i was listening to folklore and i was like i had such a wild experience for my brain was like you're happy and then i started to cry (laughs) oh my god (laughs) because i was like i'm happy oh god i haven't been happy in five months oh god (laughs) so so thanks for that T T Swift Tay- is that the nickname people? I have use? no idea.
0: I say Tay Tay, but just to annoy my sister-in-law who really loves oh. Taylor Swift.
1: Oh, I'm much too old for this. And speaking of things I'm much too old mm-hmm. for, the other thing that brings me a great deal of regular joy is um, TikTok. Myself, I <laughs> got really into TikTok during this quarantine.
0: <laughs> Tell me about it.
1: If anybody just ever wants to talk about favorite TikToks, just let me know. I have started, like, any friends who will let me, I just send them TikToks, Mm -hmm. like, all evening. (laughs) I sort of get on there around 10 p.m. and then just, like, start scrolling. With my media theorist hat on, I think there's a lot of really interesting and, like, Gen Z specific things about TikTok. Like, the whole point of TikTok is that you... Not only stop fighting the algorithm. Mm-hmm. You know how millennials are always fighting algorithms <laughs> and trying to curate things instead? The whole thing with TikTok is that not only do you not fight the algorithm, you work with the algorithm mm. to help it program a version of a homepage that randomly sends content that will appeal to you in your direction Mm -hmm. so a ton of the videos are sort of meta commentary Mm. on the algorithm Mm -hmm. that are like hey if you're seeing this like there's no hashtags on this post so if you're seeing this then that means and then it will say something about you like in the case of my for you page either you're the gay cousin or you have anxiety (laughs) (laughs) sometimes both i would bet (laughs) yeah yeah absolutely both
0: You know what I think is really cool about TikTok? I don't know a heck of a lot about it. um, But the thing that I find really fascinating is the citation practice that is embedded into TikTok. Because with so many of the millennial social media, it's like things are just captured and stolen. And so there's so much like, hey, don't forget you need to give credit to the original poster and all of this stuff. And people are like, who cares? I don't know. It's this constant Mm, unsatisfying back and forth but in tiktok
1: it's embedded you actually like cite your source it's embedded so you can click on the audio and see who created the audio and go back and see the original person Mm -hmm. so there is this interesting citational politics an interesting destabilization of the idea of originality Mm. being the point Mm -hmm. and a sort of excitement and pleasure in sort of meme-like replication of Mm -hmm. jokes and also really importantly, a tendency for like particularly black creators to come up with a new dance, Mm. a new audio, something like that. And for it then to be taken up by popular white creators and usurped and Mm. monetized, like it's got these layered citations but the citational logic also makes way for a sort of transparent appropriation hmm. where it's like it's not against the logic of how we use this hmm. platform. I'm allowed to steal from you. So it's actually amped up certain forms of appropriation because it's like, quote unquote, OK, hmm. it's a super interesting platform. Hmm. This is how I enjoy things. <laughs> I'm like, what a fun video. Let me theorize it in my brain. I'm going to pretend I'm at a conference. and The only audience is my cat's. <laughs>
0: Oh my god, Hannah. <laughs> You're doing amazing and I'm really proud of you.
1: I'm fun. What can I say?
0: You are very fun. Right. Your cats are lucky to have you. <laughs> and so am I.
1: Oh, oh, bless you. Folklore is so good it's though, It's great.
0: Huh? It's surprisingly yeah. incredible.
1: I just really like yeah. it. Okay, let's move on.
0: All right, let's do that. Turnabout is fair play, by which I mean that you, Hannah, are officially in charge of revisions, where we take a look at what ground we've covered so far and probe a little further into the text. So in the last episode, we switched from exploring Orientalism as a discourse that produces the other by using particular recurring tropes to looking at animals as an example of ideology at work particularly the ideological invention of the human as other than animal and how that ideology also contributes to systemic racism. In this episode, we're going to be shifting our lens a little bit from race to class, but as we'll see, not that far because race and class are deeply intertwined. So tell me, Hannah, what does Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone have to say about class?
1: So I did not make a chart. But that's OK, because I read ahead into our notes and I see that you made one of the next segment. <laughs> so I'm glad to see there will still be a uh-huh. chart. You have a very systemic way of approaching I things. Need, I
0: need mm. visual. I have a I, I'm a visual learner. And so I need to see how things yeah. move and relate to each other.
1: I love that. I love that. But what I did do is go back through the book and think about what is this book telling us about? The operation of class in the wizarding Mm -hmm. world where does concern about class and about the you know intersecting categories of class wealth and money Mm -hmm. where do those pop up and what really struck me as i was revisiting the book again (laughs) this is such an interesting and weird way to reread a book it's just that i'm sort of iteratively (laughs) rereading it over and over again as we make these episodes it's very cool What stood out to me is that the chapters Diagon Alley, the journey from Platform 9 and 3 quarters, and the Sorting Hat, so that cluster of chapters, Mm -hmm. really chart Harry's process of moving from the Muggle world into the Wizarding World. So that's his little sort of journey from outside to Mm -hmm. inside, beginning with the realization that he's a wizard. So the beginning of the chapter Diagon Alley, he wakes up the morning after his birthday and is like, oh, I must've dreamt that. That Mm. can't be real. So that's the first morning he's woken up and like is a wizard Mm -hmm. now culminating in the sorting ceremony and his successfully being sorted into Gryffindor and sort of, you know, having his first big meal, which is a kind of ritual of acceptance Mm. into the world of Hogwarts. So we talked about this as a hero's journey where he has to encounter and overcome a series of obstacles, sometimes literally Mm Like in the case of the platform, like platform nine and three quarters is like a literal wall mm-hmm. that you have to figure out how to magically get through. And then he also begins to acquire guides and allies who are going to help right. him navigate these barriers. So we've got Hagrid who like taps the brick at Diagon Alley, lets him through that mm-hmm. wall. And then we've got the Weasleys who show him how the platform works and get him through that mm-hmm. wall. So it's like he's going from outside to inside and he needs these right. guides. But one of the obstacles that he encounters in this new world really early on is negotiating class politics. Like one of the first bad guys that he has to navigate an interaction with is Draco. Mm -hmm. And the nature of that interaction that he has to navigate is one in which he is being... Interpolated as a particular class and has to make a decision Hmm. about how he's going to respond to that. So, across these three chapters, we see Harry navigating the class politics of the wizarding world. Like, as he moves from outside to inside, he has to decide how he's going to position himself, Mm -hmm. who his allies are going to be, who his friends are going to be. And that decision about self positioning is very much inflected with conversations about class. Wealth and pure blood status. So we get early on in Diagon Alley, the revelation that Harry has a bunch of what Amy Natchuso might call secret white person mm-hmm. money. This is Ami So is one of the co-hosts of Call Your Girlfriend. And they did a wonderful episode where they talked about wealth and the intergenerational accumulation of wealth and how it aligns with mm-hmm. race. I know that not all readers read Harry as white. And so, you know, our relationship to Harry's secret money and how it is inflected by race will be complicated by how you read Mm -hmm. Harry. But if you do read Harry as white, you know, as per the way he tends to be represented in the films, for example... Yeah, we could absolutely call that secret (laughs) vault full of money as secret white person money. Sure can. And then, (laughs) yeah. And then his encounter with Draco. (laughs) His finding out that there's like the right kind of wizarding families and the wrong kind of wizarding families and what that means. His decision to befriend Ron and Hagrid. His finding out about mudbloods and the sort of politics of inheritance in the wizarding world and at every turn harry seems to make these really deliberate decisions to align himself with working class wizards Hmm. right like draco says you know hagrid isn't he a sort of servant Mm. right so the way he dismisses hagrid has to do with his relationship in terms of class and labor Mm -hmm. at hogwarts and that like really gets harry's hackles up And similarly, you know, Draco's snobbery really puts him off. He feels perhaps more drawn to the Weasleys Mm -hmm. because of the way that their poverty sort of puts them at the margins Mm -hmm. in a similar way to the way that he feels marginalized, sort of by virtue of like having grown up not knowing about the wizarding Mm -hmm. world. And so there seems to be an implication in the text that Harry's upbringing aligns him with working class wizards, despite the fact that his wealth and his ancestry make him, I don't know, upper middle class, Mm. like upper class, like. Hard to say because I'm not sure how class works in the wizarding world. <laughs> or maybe that it's because he was raised in the muggle world. He aligns more with Muggleborns in terms of their anxiety about lacking the tacit knowledge you need to navigate the wizarding world, which is also kind of classed, right? Because mm-hmm. that lack of tacit knowledge is part of what makes, you know, institutions of education often really inaccessible to working class mm-hmm. people. Because you have to know all of these things about how they work before you can even get into them. You know, how would you apply? How would you get scholarships? Where do you go and buy the supplies Mm -hmm. you need? Like, those are all barriers. Mm -hmm. So what I'm really interested in is how the book is positioning Harry as a kind of wealthy working class ally. Mm -hmm. And what his class positioning has to do with wealth on the one hand, right? Inherited money with the inheritance of magic on the other hand, Mm -hmm. you know, how the intergenerational accumulation of wizarding wealth and the intergenerational inheritance of wizarding magic seem to align, Mm -hmm. you know, like is Hermione new money (laughs) because she's new magic? Like how is magical ability and actual accumulation of wealth aligning Mm -hmm. and what does Harry's position as kind of somebody who could be friends with Draco Malfoy and chooses not to be Mm -hmm. what does that tell us about how the book is handling class Mm. these are great questions Hannah these are my questions (laughs) and what I'm really hoping Mm -hmm. is that we can learn a little bit more about class and how it operates Mm -hmm. and maybe that will Help us answer some of them? Or ask more, which is more (laughs) like considering (laughs) us. (laughs) You know, when you think about it, considering our longstanding argument that transfiguration is applied physics, it's odd to name our segment about theory after transfiguration. Mm. Huh? Mm. Anyway, transfiguration class.
0: (laughs) All right. So, what do we mean when we're talking about class?
1: Marcel, I never know. Let me tell you. (laughs) Oh, thank goodness.
0: Okay. The first thing to know is that Western society is organized hierarchically in terms of class. And so, this means that power is organized from the top down with a few people on the top holding way more power than the many people on the bottom. Not only do the few people on top hold more power, but they profit directly from the labor and typically exploitation of the people below them. Okay, so this sounds a lot
1: like feudalism.
0: Yes. So, in order to have a sense of how society came to be organized this way, let's look at the recent history of the British aristocracy. Okay. Great. So, in feudalism, it used to be that the aristocracy was at the top of the hierarchy. Okay. So, for centuries, you had the monarch, usually a king, Mm -hmm. ruling over the whole country right? And Mm -hmm. the king allows the peasants to live and farm his land in exchange for serving in his army, (laughs) should the need arise.
1: What a great deal.
0: But countries gradually became very big. Feudalism shifted. So it stopped being Mm -hmm. feudalism so much as a kind of aristocratic kind of rule. And so what I mean by that is the responsibility of ruling over the masses of people, became divided among the nobility. So, like, lords, ladies, counts, countesses, dukes, duchesses, your basic Downton Abbey folks. Okay?
1: Okay. So, you've got, like, the logic here is that, like, the king owns everything. Mm -hmm. Or God owns everything. Mm -hmm. And the king is God's representative on earth. So, the king owns everything. Mm -hmm. And then the king gives pieces of land to the aristocracy yes and then the aristocracy owns that the land. aristocracy
0: does not own the land they are care they don't no. own the land
1: they're just borrowing they're it from caretakers the king. of the land okay. okay they're doing the king's business <laughs> so the king owns yeah. it the aristocracy manage yeah. it the laborers yes. work it
0: yes cool. okay all right during the period of british imperialism when england grabbed up a bunch of different populated lands across this planet and then claimed ownership of them this style of governance was then imposed across the globe
1: we still see this in canada where we call land that is not privately mm-hmm. owned crown yes. land because according to you know our inherited logic of imperialism land can't be Not owned by somebody. So if it's not privately owned, it's owned by the Queen. Yes,
0: yes, exactly. And if it's not owned by the Queen because you have discovered an island in the middle of the ocean, you get to claim it. (laughs) That's why there's an American flag on the moon. (laughs)
1: Fucking wild. Okay, keep going.
0: All right. So even though... My landlord is not Sir Robert Crawley, Earl of Grantham. The social hierarchy in Canada, as well as in the UK, the US, Australia, etc., still looks a lot like Downton Abbey, where you have owners and then you have the peasants. (laughs) But we don't really call them peasants anymore. It's a little bit more complicated than that. In our present-day capitalist society, the ruling class is no longer made up of the queen's cousins, but rather what we call the bourgeoisie. And so technically, the bourgeoisie are part of the middle class, but the middle class is huge in a way that it did not used to be. The bourgeoisie are the owners of the factories, the big businesses, and the corporations that produce the majority of our society's wealth. So they're the owners.
1: Yes. You see this all the time in a certain form of liberal politics is this commitment to the middle Mm -hmm. class as a sort of sign of like what's good about modernity Mm -hmm. so this is what like in Canada at least like our liberal government is always like we're gonna restore the middle (laughs) class because wealth is kind of striating more right like we're almost returning more to a like there's the hyper wealthy one percent and then there's everybody Mm -hmm. else and there's the sense that like oh well that's bad we need the middle class Mm -hmm. back
0: yes yes but what that Discourse obscures is the fact that the bourgeoisie are part of the middle class. They are just the middle class that owns the <laughs> the means of production <laughs> that the rest of us are churning out. Okay, so here's the chart that you were referring to. I made a, a kind of bulleted list. Great. All right. So at the very top, you have the elite. Okay. So even though the nobility are no longer the primary owners of everything, they do still exist and they are still significant and powerful people in their own right. But I kind of imagine them as sort of living like on a cloud a little bit, (laughs) like they don't get their hands dirty. (laughs) Anyway, let me tell you about the elite. Okay. So when we think of the elite, we might think about folks who would be called old money. Okay. So, these are like mm-hmm. the Malfoys, great example. These are folks whose wealth has been inherited over generations. They're very well connected people. They know all of the other powerful people. They might be former landowners, or the families might be former plantation owners in North American contexts. And these would also be people whose names are associated with political legacies right? So these days, we have a lot of new people entering into politics, not legacy families. But a really good example of a legacy family here in Canada would be the Trudos. So Justin Trudeau is absolutely part of the Canadian
1: elite. 100%. Yeah. Don't you have a moment of being taken aback whenever you like, you know, meet somebody who's working on a PhD, and it's like, Both of their parents were professors and also their parents' parents were professors. Like, as somebody who does not do the same thing as anybody else in my family, I forget Mm -hmm. the way that, like, intergenerational status accrues and people do the things that their parents did. Yes. I'm like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Power. Wild. All right. We get
0: the elite, right? Elite, clear, clear. So then we've got the bourgeoisie who have become recently what we tend to call the upper middle class, okay? And so this category of people is largely made up of new money people. So these are folks who didn't inherit their wealth, but they got rich through investments. They got rich by buying up a bunch of newspapers, for example, during the initial newspaper boom, and then became media moguls or whatever. Or maybe they Mm -hmm. patented some small thing that turned out to be essential to the proper running of a rotary phone or something like that so they they made a ton of money that way
1: one of my favorite tropes in romance novels is when they're set right around that Mm don't nabby like late 19th early 20th century and it's about like a woman who comes from old money (laughs) like marrying a new money man because he's always like has a secret working class background that makes him extremely virile. Like there's this, this romance (laughs) novels in particular play out these like particular fantasies of what it means to be new money and old money and like stagnation versus like new energy that comes with entrepreneurship. Mm
0: -hmm. I mean, that makes sense to me because a lot of these new money people bought up land that, had to be sold by the bankrupt gentry or nobility, right? So like these old money people who squandered (laughs) their finances by having irresponsible youths, because surprise, primogeniture, where you just assume that the firstborn son is going to be responsible. (laughs) Not actually a great way to pass on anything.
1: Mm. Okay, yep. suck landed yep. gentry.
0: So, like the elite, the bourgeoisie are also owners, especially of land purchased from the bankrupt mm-hmm. gentry, but also more familiarly owners of factories and of corporations, that kind of thing. So recently we developed another subset of middle class that we call the lower middle class. And so this is also known as the petite bourgeoisie or the petty bourgeoisie. I kind of like petty bourgeoisie because it sounds like they're ding-dongs. <laughs>
1: I also really like petty bourgeoisie. I think it's really funny. Yeah,
0: they're really pissed that they don't make as much money as the upper middle class. And so they're petty about it. These folks are what we tend to call white collar and more recently we call pink collar workers. So these are folks who are managers, they have office jobs, or they are teachers and nurses, but they're folks who are integral to the running of our capitalist society, but they don't own it. And they're Mm -hmm. not the exploited laborers. Okay. And also, more recently, again, in I would say like maybe in the last like 70 years or so, this segment of the middle class has started to become owners in a much more limited sense. So referring to small business owners, and particularly
1: homeowners.
0: So if you pay rent, Mm -hmm. Your landlord is probably a member of the petty bourgeoisie.
1: Makes sense. Unless you are renting a castle.
0: <laughs> yeah. Or renting from a big conglomerate like Rentex. And so the owner of Rentex is part of the upper middle class. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. So then the second last rung on the hierarchy, we have the working class this is the proletariat. These are traditionally blue collar workers. So factory workers, construction workers, people who do manual labor, landscapers, that kind of thing. So typically, this is the group of people who, when we talk about the few on the top owning everything and the many on the bottom, this is largely what we Mm -hmm. mean by the many on the bottom. These are the people who are the least compensated for the system that they literally uphold.
1: Yes, who who do most of the production, but don't own the means exactly. of production, but outnumber those who own the means of production and so should rise, should up. rise up.
0: Exactly. But okay. as we will see, they are prevented from rising up through a variety of oppressive tools. And then we have at the very bottom rung, my favorite term, which we actually don't use anymore, but it's the lumpenproletariat.
1: <laughs> wildly dehumanizing.
0: Um, Also often called the rabble. But now in our civilized late capitalist society, we tend to refer to this category of people as the precariat. And so gotcha. these are largely folks who are living in poverty. And folks who are unable to be political because their primary focus is on survival rather than improving their lot in life.
1: Ironically, even though that is sort of the function of precaritization Mm -hmm. is to try to make people not be political because they're focused on survival. Mm -hmm. A lot of the most radical and insurgent politics absolutely come From communities of people who are wildly dispossessed by late capitalism. So, you know, the local example I look to all the time is the kinds of radical community organization and political organizing coming out of the downtown East Side Mm -hmm. with people who are drug users, who are often unhomed, Mm -hmm. who are often struggling with multiple disabilities, Mm -hmm. um, with mental health issues, and who are doing, you know, really incredible and radical organizing work that often overlaps with, for example, sex worker Mm -hmm. rights, indigenous rights, because sex workers are overrepresented in those Mm -hmm. communities. In Vancouver, indigenous people are overrepresented in those Mm -hmm. communities. And so a lot of the time, the like really radical transformative politics are coming out exactly out of that place of people like who have been dispossessed in order to keep them from being organized. Yes, yes. No, that's that's totally true. It's a great way to keep people from being political is to make sure that they're real distracted trying to stay alive. Yeah.
0: And as we've seen during this global pandemic, the precariat is expanding rapidly. And to clarify, the writing or the theorizing that describes these categories of people as being unable to be political. Actually, some of that writing is really hateful in the sense that they're uninterested or they have no class consciousness. And I think that we can attribute a lot of that language to the kind of gatekeeping politics that has shaped Marxist thought in more exclusive directions, which isn't to say that all Marxist thought is this kind of (laughs) ironically very classist thought, but rather that there is a tendency among groups who take ownership of theory to describe people who don't participate in that theory in very
1: inconsiderate terms. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, hashtag not all Marxists. Yeah. And also hashtag no tall Marxists. Hashtag no tall Marxists. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we can all agree.
0: Yes. All right. So we need to remember that theory is a way of understanding the world that we live in. And so I'm sure that there are some listeners who are going to say, well, my parents didn't come from money, but they built successful businesses through hard work and stick to itiveness. And I believe you. I'm sure that that is true because, especially recently, there are a lot of examples of this. But these individual examples do not destabilize the social and economic organization of our society. Rather, the exceptions tend to uphold
1: it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: And also thinking back to our previous episode, Hannah, we can also see that classes are ideological, right? There's nothing natural about wealth. And with the emergence of terms like new money, we're also reminded that class isn't even about wealth it's about access to power. And so the separation of power by categories of wealth is a way of limiting and controlling access to power.
1: In fact, the whole concept of ideology was coined by scholars who were working to understand how class in particular and capitalism in general managed to uphold themselves across generations. Like, how do you explain that generation after generation, the same people maintain power and the same people can to be disempowered and that we all accept that as though it's a natural function of the way the world yeah. works. The answer is ideology. Exactly.
0: exactly. Yeah. All right. So our understanding and critiques of class and capitalism come from Karl Marx. So if you've ever heard of Marxism, this is where these ideas are coming from. But personally, I find Marx's philosophy to be extremely dense And the fact that he was writing in the 19th century, a very different era from our own, makes it really hard for me to adequately understand how his theories apply to our own society. But fortunately, there are a lot of Marxists out there who have done that work for us. (laughs) A bunch of them are on TikTok.
1: (laughs) I believe it.
0: (laughs) So... For this episode, I'm drawing largely on an article by Dr. Kianga Yamada Taylor, who is a professor of African American studies at Princeton University, and a revolutionary Marxist. Mm. So a very good, very clear quote from Taylor right to get us started. Capitalism is a system based on the exploitation of the many by the few. Because it is a system based on gross inequality, it requires various tools to divide the majority. Racism and all oppressions under capitalism serve this purpose.
1: I mean, right there, we get back to that point you made about race and class being deeply entangled Mm -hmm. and understanding how trying to sort of subdivide people into groups that will understand themselves to be at opposed purposes Mm -hmm. is a great way of managing everyone.
0: Yeah, yeah. Actually, Dr. Taylor problematizes the notion of classism as being a distinct oppressive force because of the ways that racism is so deeply entwined with class. And so let me tell you a little bit more about capitalism and the way that it works by quoting again from the extremely, extremely clear, <laughs> unlike Many Marxists, the extremely clear and easy to understand <laughs> Dr. Taylor.
1: Bless you for finding an easy to understand Marxist, because most Marxists, I'm like, I don't know what any of those it words meant. Me so. Um, okay.
0: So Dr. Taylor writes Capitalism operates under the laws of false scarcity, which simply means that we are told there isn't enough to go around, so we must compete with each other for housing, education, jobs, and anything else valued in society. While the scarcity is false, the competition is real, and workers fighting over these items to better themselves or their families are often willing to believe the worst about other workers to justify why they should have something and others should not.
1: Mm. Mm. So clear. Uh, I (laughs) know. This is the theory that helps to explain why people who are themselves sort of... You know, the petty bourgeoisie or working class will vote against or lobby against the taxation of the rich, yes! because there's this logic in capitalism that says that you have a chance of becoming yes. wealthy. Like you could also be Elon Musk, <laughs> and so you don't want the rich taxed mm-hmm. because. That means that, like, a thing that could be yours mm-hmm. could be taken away from you and given to somebody else, and you don't want things that are yours taken away, and not just to somebody else, but somebody who doesn't deserve it, somebody who hasn't worked mm-hmm. hard and exactly. earned it. It's fine that a ton of our stuff is being taken away and given to rich people because <laughs> <laughs> they've they worked for it. it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Fucking wild. Okay, so class anxiety. Comes out of capitalism because of the illusion of upward social mobility, right? So, class anxiety i like to think of it as a kind of imposter syndrome that affects folks who have become more financially stable than their parents or their grandparents yeah Ooh. so presumably for for those of us who because of our educational opportunities have left our working class roots and find ourselves in a more middle middle class area we've more petty bourgeois than proletariat for us Because of the laws of false scarcity, financial stability is turned into something that we feel we need to earn rather than something that we deserve. And class anxiety is the feeling Mm -hmm. that you don't actually deserve your own socioeconomic success that you're just pretending to fit in with those who have rightfully earned it. And you could be found out as an imposter at any moment. And so indications of your former poverty, they can be anything. They can be your accent. They can be your manners, the quality of your clothes, even the foods that you like.
1: Okay. So (laughs) when I first moved to Vancouver and switched like overnight from being somebody who was like a postdoc in a financially precarious situation Mm -hmm. to a professor, Mm right? Suddenly making more money, ostensibly living a different kind of lifestyle. I had so much anxiety about inviting any of my colleagues over to my home. And I was trying to explain this to my friend Vanessa. And I was like, well, they can't come to my house because then they'll know. And she was like, they'll know what? And I was like, I'm not sure, but they'll know. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Like this, this is what they will know. They will see the fact that I own exclusively IKEA Mm -hmm. furniture, and they'll know exactly, exactly. Okay, so that's the one
0: pole of class anxiety. There's another pole of class anxiety. okay? Okay, and this, this other pole, is the glaring recognition that when you don't come from money, you are always one move away from losing that financial security. Okay, so Mm. this can be things like medical bills or a home or a car repair that you can't afford, losing your job or outstanding debt like, God help us all,
1: student loan debt. Yeah, which is why being poor and being broke are not the same thing. Because you can be like a broke undergrad student, but if you come from Mm -hmm. money, you are not one bad move away from devastation. You're one bad move away from... The embarrassing experience of calling exactly. Your
0: parents. Exactly. These two poles of class anxiety are in constant tension with one another, with one side telling you, as your example so clearly describes, that in order to fit in, you need to look like you fit in, and the other side telling you that you can't afford to look like you fit in.
1: Mm. No, Marcel, <laughs> stop describing my life. I hate it. <laughs>
0: I actually think that home ownership is is the best example of this because there is so much pressure to own your home and there's so much pressure to own the right kind of home in the right neighborhood and most egregiously to think of home ownership as an investment like the idea that you are going to own a home for a while which you will then sell at a profit to move into a bigger one the term starter home offends me to my core. (laughs) Like the idea that you're, this is my starter home, but once I'm ready to get a bigger home, I'm going to sell it to somebody who's starting their home ownership journey. Oh God, it makes me, it makes me so mad. And so this ends up forcing a lot of folks homeownership in particular ends up forcing a lot of folks to choose between being found out as an imposter or risking the upward social mobility that they've gained because they end up buying homes that they can't afford.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So. Oh my God. I can't, I was reading an article recently about how black people when selling their homes will like go through and clear out like any, Family photos, Mm. for example, because homes that are visibly owned by black people are appraised at a lower value than homes that appear to be owned by white people. So there's another Mm -hmm. again when you sort of recognize that you can't talk about class without also talking about race simultaneously Mm -hmm. because these things are always like deeply intertwined with each other. And when it comes to things like homeownership, you know, the whole idea of like acquiring capital and investing Mm -hmm. and gaining equity over time like these are all things that are like as narratives they are narratives that are designed to work for white people yes
0: yes yes exactly so let's go back to taylor who tells us that capitalism this is a quote is dependent on racism as both a source of profiteering but more importantly as a means to divide and rule Racism is necessary to drive a wedge between workers who otherwise have everything in common and every reason to ally and organize together, but who are perpetually driven apart to the benefit of the ruling class. And so in other words, she's writing, racism is the most important of those social ideologies that justify, explain, and help perpetuate the capitalist order. Yeah.
1: Okay, you know what I really love about that is that it... Refuses what I see a lot of Marxist, of white Marxist critics trying to do, which is to claim that class precedes racism. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Which is something I absolutely see white Marxists be like, we can absolutely deal with race once we've done with class because class came first and once, like mm-hmm. this idea, right? And this happens, you know, feminists, white feminists do this, like we can solve race once we've solved gender. Exactly. As though class exists outside of racism, as though gender exists outside of racism, as though these are discrete categories that aren't like mutually created and intertwined.
0: It is also a false separation because racism does emerge at the same time that classes begin to become more defined because of issues like the slave trade and the very literal exploitation of black bodies and black workers. And so racism continues to be used to justify the exploitation of non-white workers. And white folks are especially led to associate poverty with blackness because the American dream narrative slash Protestant work ethic, all of those pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of ideologies insist that Anyone can climb out of poverty if they work hard enough, but we know that that's not true because of all of the additional barriers that affect non-white people and particularly Black folks. And so if you haven't climbed out of poverty, it must be because you didn't work hard enough. But then at the same time, the illusion of scarcity divides us along lines of race, and so folks who are not able to access the promised social mobility are led to believe that their opportunities have been stolen from them. And so we see this among Mm. working class whites Mm. who believe that immigrants are stealing their jobs. And we see this among middle class whites who believe that quote unquote equity and diversity give opportunities to
1: undeserving people. And so that's why the number of fucking (laughs) (laughs) White dudes with PhDs who claim that they can't get jobs because universities will only do quote unquote diversity hires right now, which is just like, no, dude, the whole fucking system is broken and you are absolutely letting racism (laughs) turn you against people who you should absolutely be working for and with. Yes, exactly. Because scarcity isn't real. Yes, it's artificially constructed in order to prevent us from rising Mm -hmm. up and reclaiming the means of production. Oh, oh. So, important question. (laughs) When do we eat the rich? (laughs) For breakfast. Okay, great, 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 great.
0: Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile.
1: I, this I mean, I, who knows, maybe the listeners also learned something, but I definitely just learned a lot about how class works.
0: This episode isn't all about animals, so it's probably been low on hoots so far. Hmm? Thank goodness for owls! where we use our theories to unpack something new about Harry Potter. All right, Hannah, let's return to your questions about how Harry is navigating class in this first book.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lot of really interesting ways that what you just outlined can tie back into my questions about class in this book. And one of the first ones that really stands out is how Harry is navigating Those forms of class anxiety Mm -hmm. that you described. So there is the sense that like the background that Harry comes out of is a very bourgeois sort of petty bourgeoisie keeping up with the Joneses kind Mm -hmm. of middle class lifestyle. What we saw of the Dursleys was very much that they were concerned with, like, looking the right Mm -hmm. way, owning the right kinds of things, giving the proper kind of impression. And that Harry was, like, someone that they were ashamed of and literally hid away when people came over. Like, he was the kind of physical signifier that you might try to hide, Mm -hmm. to to hide your class anxiety. Mm -hmm. So that way that he was treated and, you know, the way that he was dressed and underfed and all of these things, you know, we can understand in some ways that Harry sort of comes into the wizarding world with a kind of class anxiety of somebody who has just been made rapidly, upwardly mobile. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Like he's gone from having nothing to having wealth. Mm-hmm. He's gone from being nobody to being
0: famous. Yeah. And he doesn't know how to spend money, right? Like there's that scene when Hagrid has to stop him from buying a solid gold cauldron. Yeah,
1: (laughs) absolutely. I remember friend of the podcast, Andrea Hasenbank, Mm -hmm. once explaining to me, and this is probably much less nuanced a point than she was making at the time, but... She was explaining that the sort of relationship of money that working class and middle class people have is often really different and that working class people, when they get money will often spend Mm -hmm. it because you have no reassurance that you will have money again Mm -hmm. in the future. So like spend it now, spend it on stuff, you know, spend it on stuff for your family, Mm -hmm. spend it on stuff for your community, spend it on stuff you haven't been able to access, like just use Mm -hmm. it because who knows if you'll have money in the future. Whereas the middle class reassurance that money that you get now is a sign of upward mobility, Mm -hmm. a sign of increasing stability, a sign that you'll have more money going forward. Mm -hmm. And so you're more likely to be like, well, I just got this money. I'll invest it. I won't spend it now. I'll save it. I'll start saving up for a down payment. I'll start saving up for a blah, blah, Mm -hmm. blah. That's a very middle class relationship to have to Mm -hmm. money. And so that, you know, seeing Harry like suddenly come into money, you know, he's been raised in a middle class household, but he hasn't been raised have a middle-class relationship to having things. He's been raised in a situation of intense scarcity. Yeah, exactly. Intense and artificially
0: produced scarcity. (laughs) In that sense, Harry is actually a great representation of the false laws of scarcity. (laughs) 100%
1: 100% yeah. that it's literally being actively invented by a couple of abusive adults. Yes. yeah. Just being like, we're going to pretend there's not enough to go around because we want all of it to go to this person yeah. and not to this person. Yeah. The relationship between Harry and Dudley is just a metaphor for the relationship between the working class and the bourgeoisie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Mm. So there's that. Yeah. But then there's also another interesting dynamic of his class anxiety which is the way that he suddenly has all of this wealth mm-hmm. and the people that he makes friends with don't have access to that yeah. wealth and so like how is he also going to navigate that mm-hmm. which reminds me of the way that I have personally seen in social justice communities rich people like quote unquote coming out mm-hmm. as rich mm-hmm. Like, you know, we had a little while ago in the Vancouver literary scene, somebody like out themselves as coming from upper class, Mm. like coming from multi-generational inherited super wealth. Mm -hmm. And the way that that is something that you hide when you are in particular kinds of communities. I mean, why? Because you want the form of political capital that comes from being working class or because you're not ready or willing to become a true class trader yet. And Mm. so you don't want people to know about the access to resources (laughs) and wealth that you have.
0: I think it does also remind me that it's an internalization of the recognition that wealth is not something that you can deserve. Mm. So folks who come from money, but who are not, you know, personally invested in the socioeconomic naturalizing. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Yeah, They're embarrassed that people will know that they have this money that they don't deserve. Whereas those of us who have come into more wealth than our families had before us, we're embarrassed that we'll be found out as having access to this that we don't deserve. So the relationship is very similar in that we're all still (laughs) associating Financial stability and security with dessert and not tasty treats, dessert, but like the thing that you have worked for and have earned and therefore deserve. deserve. And money isn't that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it really isn't that. You don't, nobody deserves money. Harry, adorably, as an 11 year old, literally associates money with. Dessert, because yeah. that's like the only thing you can think of to buy with it is just a lot of candy. Pumpkin pasties. Which is very cute. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, whatever those are. Never tell me. No. But yeah, absolutely. That anxiety, I think, is even amplified by the arbitrariness mm-hmm. of how overnight he goes from being somebody who's told he's no one special and deserves nothing mm-hmm. to the idea that he's somebody who's deeply special, like not only magical, Mm -hmm. but a famous person in the magical world who came from famous, important witches and wizards and who has all of this money. And it's like, nothing's going to make it more clear that that is completely arbitrary as the experience of just overnight Mm -hmm. being presented with new wealth and a new social position. Yeah. So, I think there's one reading available to us where we can say that, you know, Harry kind of has this latent capacity to become a class traitor because his experience has exposed him to how completely arbitrary mm-hmm. these categories and these forms of access are. Whereas somebody like Draco Malfoy, who was raised in this world Mm -hmm. has been raised to really internalize the naturalness and rightness Mm -hmm. of these hierarchies. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So if you have a natural entitlement to your wealth, it is because you also have a natural entitlement to your power. And in the magical world, that's a literal power. It's magic power. (laughs) Yeah. 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 It's, so, I don't, you know, whenever I think about Harry's sudden acquisition of wealth, I can't think of it as anything other than a convenient narrative device, because <laughs> there doesn't seem to be any evidence that the Potters are, like, I I, I know we eventually learn that they, like, come from the Peverell family or whatever, so they're, like, an old wizarding family, But, but
1: they, like, this young couple who like lived in a little tiny house yeah. like where where the money come why from why are they super did rich did they have insurance
0: is there wizarding life, life insurance, insurance. No. and because it was an accidental death they got more money like it doesn't make any
1: sense because there are no other potters No life insurance policy in the world protects you against accidental death via Voldemort. Not a chance. (laughs) Yeah. Via murder. Political murder. Political assassination. Yeah. Yeah. It, like... Yeah, I mean, that is a great question. It, It feels like a narrative convenience, and it particularly feels like a narrative convenience that is associated with a lot of sort of British children's stories Mm, mm -hmm. where part of the fantasy of moving from having nothing to having something means you know the sudden revelation of some form of inheritance Mm, or wealth mm -hmm. that it doesn't really matter where it comes from at the end of the day Mm -hmm. it matters that you have to come into wealth in order to become somebody who is stable Mm. but also like recognizable as the protagonist of a story Mm -hmm. as a hero like you can't have a hero who's poor they ultimately have to come into wealth of some sort right Mm -hmm. like this is a this is a function of the sort of how middle class literature plays a role in perpetuating Mm -hmm. the ideologies of capitalism (laughs) is that it doesn't let working class people be protagonists and heroes except in so far as they begin there and then gradually move into middle-class respectability as part of their sort of becoming recognizable and you see this all the time in sort of kids books that are about a kid who was born into wealth temporarily losing Mm -hmm. their wealth and then recovering Mm -hmm. it and so it's like you might be poor temporarily as a function of narrative Mm -hmm. but it's only ever temporary, and you always sort of belong to there's either the middle class or the upper class, yeah. right? You're a secret princess. Yes, yeah. yes. You're a secret yeah. aristocracy. You're a long lost duke or yeah. whatever. Oh my. Yeah. In that sense, yeah. right? There is in the very logic of Harry Potter this sort of conservative notion of middle classness as mm-hmm. the default identity that makes people recognizable. And then there's also characters like Hagrid who are like subversive working class figures Mm -hmm. who are there to remind us that like the whole logic of Hogwarts has some fundamental flaws to it
0: (laughs) yes right Yeah, Yeah. like
1: for example there's one school and tuition is free Mm -hmm. which is good but you nonetheless need to buy a lot of stuff to go to it like you have to go and Buy all your books and your wand and your potions ingredients and your cauldron mm-hmm. and an owl and some robes <laughs> yeah. like you know And eventually dress, buy robes. all this stuff. <laughs> yeah. All of these things. So you need to buy access into this world, even if it's not literally at the level of tuition. Yeah. And then if you don't successfully graduate from this school, you immediately become illegible in terms of the kinds of jobs that are available, yeah. the kind of capacity to earn money. Mm-hmm. So the fact that Hagrid was, I almost said exiled, but I mean expelled, yeah. <laughs> means that he is immediately thrust into this liminal position. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: yeah. I don't know why, but that's reminding me of this conversation that I had, I think, with my household. We're talking about Ron's particular experience of poverty and how it must necessarily be different from that of his older brothers because... Bill and Charlie would have been the first of the family to go to Hogwarts. So their robes would not have been as, you know, threadbare and visibly deteriorating as what Ron gets handed down. And so I think also like his particular experience is so connected to the fact that he's the youngest of six boys. (laughs) Whereas Mm -hmm. I think Ginny Is there, like, a gendered dress code at Hogwarts? Like, is Ginny's uniform different from her brother's?
1: Mm. Yeah, or can Ginny just also inherit Ron's Mm -hmm. robes? Yeah. You know, that that is not clear in how we encounter Ginny. Though I think we can read some of Ginny's being drawn in by Tom Riddle as its own form of class anxiety, for sure. Yeah, I mean, where would you read the Weasleys in terms of Like, are they working class or are they petty bourgeoisie? So
0: because Mr. Weasley works for the ministry, they're definitely petty bourgeoisie, but I think they come... Ah, that's a good question because they're also an old wizarding family, but I think that the way that they seem to be known, and I think the way that they're coated with their red hair and their many children is supposed to encourage us to think of them as coming from working class or like a farming background. That makes
1: a lot of sense that they're like an agrarian family that was working class that has maybe moved into the petty bourgeoisie Mm -hmm. by virtue of Mr. Weasley getting this job, that that might be sort of the movement that the Weasleys have made from working class into lower middle class, Mm -hmm. which would also explain like a lot of ron's class anxieties that mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. they are sort of you know trying to fit into mm-hmm. this middle-class wizarding world of people who work for the ministry mm-hmm. does lucius malfoy work for the ministry or does he have no job i believe he has no job his job is just being rich and yeah I, you,
0: we might consider cool. him a lobbyist <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, absolutely um, but yeah I, absolutely I, I, but that's I, yeah yeah that's like aristocracy mm-hmm. like inherited yeah. wealth yeah so so that sense of like ron wants desperately to be able to i think just as as often children do in general but ron wants desperately to be able to sort of fit in and seem normal yeah. and the inability to afford the things that would let him fit in and look like everybody else is a point of frequent anxiety for him. Mm -hmm. That is a particular experience that certainly resonates with Mm -hmm. me growing up in a sort of lower middle class household where there was a lot of sense of wanting to appear a certain way and not being able to afford to do so. Yeah, same. Mm -hmm. The one other thing I'd really like to think about Mm -hmm. here is how in the wizarding world class and race are intersecting. Mm -hmm. And whether we can think about being muggle born as sort of adding something else into that dynamic. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we don't have a lot of examples of working class characters. Right. I would say the working class characters we have are probably Hagrid and Filch. Mm-hmm. Even Hagrid's sort of liminal, especially when he becomes a teacher in later books. Mm-hmm. But Filch seems pretty solidly working class.
0: And I think Snape also, but we don't get evidence of that until much later, right? When we learn about where his home is and the types of people who look down on it.
1: He, again, is probably sort of lower middle class from a working class background. Mm -hmm. Like, also one of those transitional characters. And there's probably lots of those students at Hogwarts, who are in that same position. Yeah. And that's what I'm trying to parse. The way that somebody like Hermione. Mm-hmm. Who comes from like. A solidly bourgeois background. Mm-hmm. Her parents are dentists. Mm-hmm. There's no implication of financial difficulty. We see her parents. Exchanging muggle money. For wizard money. <laughs> like they seem to have access to the money they need. To get her the things that she mm-hmm. needs. Um, but. Her positioning. Within the wizarding world and the way, you know, Draco very quickly identifies himself as somebody who, like, doesn't like Mm muggle-borns and doesn't like poor people. Mm -hmm. Like, how does that dynamic of inherited magic play out in terms of class in the wizarding world? I
0: think it has to do with those same connections of, like, racial purity tends to align with a sense of like old money and inherited wealth. Right. And so I think it's a similar thing mm-hmm. where like the reason that there are muggle borns is because of a, a lack of magical intermarriage or, or whatever that, mm. that like people like Hermione pop up because the magical community did not have the adequate amount of, self-restraint to keep the magic in among magical families and like mixed families mm. are looked down upon for similar reasons that wealthy old money people, the elite are not encouraged to marry or, you know, have children, yeah. have legitimate children. So that, ah, uh, cause that's also why there's legitimate children and illegitimate children because people have always crossed those thresholds. Right. But but that's why there's an understanding of legitimacy and illegitimacy. And I think Hermione, in a like child friendly kind of way, represents the notion of or the possibility of illegitimate magic.
1: Yeah. And sort of miscegenation. Yeah. Right. Like the idea. Yeah. Which which makes a lot of sense because white supremacy and its fixation on racial purity aligns with capitalism Mm -hmm. and the justification of the accrual of wealth and power. Mm -hmm. And so this is why we get a sort of resistance to people like Hermione, Mm -hmm. you know, challenge that order. But it also explains the frankly eugenicist history of poor Neville Longbottom, Mm. Whose great uncle tried to murder him multiple times when he was a child because he failed to show adequate levels of magical. I mean, the way Neville frames it is that he was trying to get his magic to show up. Yeah. He was almost drowned as a child. It's not, and it's really very clearly, it's like this old magical family that's like, well, we can't have somebody without magic, Mm -hmm. so either this kid's going to turn out to be magical or he's going to die in the process. exactly. Yeah, the way that wealth and magic align in the wizarding world explains the sort of interesting subversive allegiances that can then be made between characters who are working class, characters who are muggle-born, characters who are poor, that these are sort of different categories and different identities, but that the sort of, friendship that harry and ron and hermione and also hagrid and also neville like that they form over time can potentially be read as a sign of the way that people with multiple experiences of oppression can ally powerfully with one another Mm -hmm. in order to dismantle and overthrow the status quo. So it sounds like what you're saying is that the Harry
0: Potter series is a metaphor for revolutionary Marxism.
1: (laughs) Right up until the end when it (laughs) fails to actually imagine a new world. Which we'll get to. Which we'll get to. That's a few books away. But isn't there an interesting Mm -hmm. latent kernel for these books being about revolutionary Marxism? Yes. Yes. They'd have to burn Hogwarts down at the end though and that's just not gonna... Well, it's not gonna fly. Yeah. 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 Thank you, witches, for joining us for episode four of Witch Please. You can find the rest of our episodes by heading over to notsorryproductions.com or owitchplease.ca, or of course wherever you like to download podcasts.
0: Witch Please is produced in partnership with Not Sorry Productions and distributed by ACAST. Special thanks to our endlessly patient producer, Ariana. Greetings. And to Not Sorry Productions for having us. And thanks to you, witches, for coming with us on this new journey. If you're into our reboot, why don't you let us know by dropping a review on Apple Podcasts. Every week, we'll read five-star reviews here. So you've got to review us if you want to hear me mispronounce your name. For example, Rat Rach Ra- eight ninety one. Also, maybe known as Ms. Ms was the title of the podcast. Oh, so okay, the title Ms. of the review Ms. Okay, yeah. Ms. I love this podcast so much. It's really opened my mind and given me tools to debate in ongoing conversations happening at the moment. I can't wait for it to return. Thank you, Hannah and Marcel. You're welcome, Ms.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Ms slash (laughs) Rach. Whoever you are, you're welcome. Also... Don't forget, we've started a Patreon where you can help keep this project going and gain access to that solid gold bonus content. Mm. Visit patreon.com slash Please to check it out. On our next episode, we'll be continuing
0: on our journey through Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone with a whole different focus. But until then, later witches.